Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Yak Talk Hacking the Boards. I'm Yakov, And I'm Ben. And welcome to episode 28 on biliary disease. This is honestly one of my favorite subjects in all of medicine. I feel like the biliary system is really the underdog of all the organ systems. And there are so many interesting pathologies that can take place there. That's really beautiful, Yakov. Thank you for that. Of course. Yeah. So first, we're going to tackle obstructions uh, in the biliary tree one step at a time. We'll be talking about cholelithiasis, cholecystitis, cholecystitis, cholangitis, and gallstone pancreatitis. After that, we'll tackle PBC and PSC with our last case. And with that, let's jump in. Okay, so we're going to start with a 45-year-old female who comes in with intermittent abdominal pain associated with nausea. She describes the pain as dull and points to her epigastrium and right upper quadrant when asked where it hurts. She says it also radiates to her back. She's experienced this four times over the past three weeks, and it's always about 30 minutes after eating, but antacids don't help. She denies smoking, taking NSAIDs, or drinking alcohol. Before I even give you her vitals and exam, let's talk through a differential. What are your thoughts? Yeah, this pain could be a lot of things, uh, but there are very subtle hints test writers will use to help you decide on an answer. With pain associated with eating, aka dyspepsia, I usually think of GERD first, but that would not likely cause nausea and would be relieved by antacids, unlike what we saw in the question stem. Then I would worry about peptic ulcer disease, but that would also be relieved by antacids. The pain would be sharp, not dull, and she doesn't take NSAIDs. I'd also worry about pancreatitis because of the epigastric pain radiating to her back, though the dull pain makes it less likely and she also has no alcohol history. I feel like I need more info to decide uh, between that and the top of my differential, which is biliary colic. Thorough differentiation there, Yak. What is biliary colic and why is it at the top of your differential? So biliary colic is when the gallbladder intermittently contracts while a gallstone temporarily blocks the cystic duct. It classically presents with dull right upper quadrant and or epigastric pain after meals, especially fatty meals, and goes away by itself after a few hours. Uh, the patient's demographics of being female over the age of 40 also put her at risk. So biliary colic was at the top of my differential. Great thinking, Jakob. You have a great brain. What are some other risk factors for developing gallstones? Obesity and hypertriglyceridemia are two important ones since gallstones are usually made out of cholesterol. Being on TPN or total parenteral nutrition can cause gallbladder stasis as well, which can result in either stones or so-called biliary sludge. Hemolytic anemia can actually cause a different type of gallstone called biliary gallstones, which are pigmented. And any disease affecting the ileum, classically Crohn's disease, can cause decreased bile acid resorption and thus supersaturated cholesterol stones. Wow. Who knew how interesting gallstones could be? Okay, so let's say that our patient's vitals are completely normal and her BMI is 33. Exam reveals only mild tenderness to palpation in the right upper quadrant. How does that help with our differential? Well, pancreatitis is less likely since she's afebrile, and she'd likely have some pretty bad tenderness in the epigastric region on exam. I'd say biliary colic is at the top for sure. So what do we need to do to help diagnose our patient? That would be an abdominal ultrasound, specifically a right upper quadrant ultrasound. And what would we expect to see on that ultrasound? We would expect to see gallstones in the lumen of the gallbladder near the cystic duct, but not completely obstructing it. So if the diagnosis of biliary colic is confirmed, what's the next step in managing our patient? We would call surgery to take out her gallbladder, aka perform a cholecystectomy, 
but it would be elective surgery, meaning she can choose when she wants to have it without any level of urgency. In general, if someone has gallstones and they're not asymptomatic, meaning they have symptoms, taking out the gallbladder is always an option. By the way, what do you do if someone is incidentally found to have gallstones? In that case, we would do nothing. No more testing or treatment is required for asymptomatic gallstones. Perfect. With that, let's move on to a case moving further down the biliary tree. Next, from the lumen to the cystic duct. All right, let's do this. So we have a 40-year-old woman, past medical history of hypertriglyceridemia, coming in with 12 hours of unrelenting right upper quadrant pain, nausea, and vomiting. She's had similar pain before after heavy meals, but it would usually resolve after a few hours. Her temperature now is 38.5 Celsius, pulse is 100, BMI is 35, blood pressure and respiratory rate are normal. Exam is positive for right upper quadrant tenderness to palpation, especially on inspiration. Ben, what's going on here? Hmm, That's a really good question, Yaakov. This sounds like acute cholecystitis to me. So before we dive into what that means, what was your main differential and why do you think this is acute cholecystitis? I would say the main other diagnosis I was considering was again, pancreatitis, but her risk factors and history of similar pain make me lean toward cholecystitis. All right, then let's talk about acute cholecystitis. What is it and how does it present? Acute cholecystitis is when a gallstone obstructs the cystic duct and remains there, which results in inflammation and distension of the gallbladder behind it. This causes the same symptoms as colic, right upper quadrant pain, nausea, and vomiting, along with fever and classically right upper quadrant tenderness to palpation worse during inspiration, which is called Murphy's sign. And that lines up with our patient perfectly, so good job. What would you expect on labs for our patient with acute cholecystitis? Likely a leukocytosis due to the inflammation, but nothing else is guaranteed. All the liver labs like AST, ALT, ALKFOS, and bilirubin are usually normal or only slightly elevated, and amylase can be slightly elevated, but also not always. So labs aren't going to get us this diagnosis. How do we do it? Diagnosis is with right upper quadrant ultrasound yet again. Uh, That keeps on being the answer. What will we see if this is cholecystitis? We would see gallbladder wall thickening and edema around the gallbladder, and a normal common bile duct. That'll make more sense after the next case. Great, let's say that's exactly what we see on our patient's ultrasound and her labs come back with a slight leukocytosis. What do we do now that we've made the diagnosis of acute cholecystitis? So we'll start with analgesics, fluids, and antibiotics, but any patient with acute cholecystitis should get a cholecystectomy within 72 hours. And what is a special kind of cholecystitis that requires emergent cholecystectomy? That would be the test favorite, emphysematous cholecystitis. Wow. So what is that? And how does it present differently than just the -the run-of-the-mill acute cholecystitis? That's when gas-forming bacteria, usually clostridium, infect the inflamed gallbladder, causing palpable crepitus from the gas bubbles under the skin as well as a higher fever and higher leukocytosis than regular cholecystitis. The big hint on the test will come from imaging findings. They'll mention air or gas in the gallbladder wall. Yikes. And who's at risk for getting emphysematous cholecystitis instead of your normal cholecystitis? Generally, the immunocompromised, and that includes patients with type 2 diabetes, and that's another favorite hint on the exam. Nice. Other than emergent cholecystectomy, any other treatment differences for emphysematous versus normal cholecystitis? Yes, you would use broad spectrum antibiotics like piperacillin tazobactam to cover for clostridium species. 
Nice. Nothing like some good ID to spice up a hepatobiliary episode. What's the other special cholecystitis, which is usually seen in critically ill patients? That would be a calculus cholecystitis, which should always be on the differential for a critically ill or trauma patient with new fever and right upper quadrant or even general abdominal pain. And how is that managed differently than the other etiologies of cholecystitis we've talked about? You would still give antibiotics, but you'd start by, by performing a cholecystostomy, as in a biliary drain, to avoid sending the critically ill patient to surgery. Once the patient is stable, it's time for a good old cholecystectomy again. Wow, we're taking out all the gallbladders here, Ben. What happens if someone has cholecystitis and you don't take out their gallbladder? It's possible to get chronic cholecystitis, meaning chronic inflammation of the gallbladder from gallstones over time. This can present asymptomatically, and the patient doesn't actually need to have a history of acute cholecystitis for this to be the answer on the exam. So how will they hint at chronic cholecystitis as a diagnosis on exams? There are two findings they'll mention on the test. One, a palpable non-tender right upper quadrant mass, and two, a calcium-laden, aka porcelain gallbladder on abdominal CT. And what's the association that exam writers want us to know for chronic cholecystitis? Patients with chronic cholecystitis are at a significantly elevated risk of developing cholangiocarcinoma, as in biliary cell adenocarcinoma. That's why, yet again, we want to take out that gallbladder. Oh, man, this is starting to sound like a game show, Ben. Uh, <laughs> let's move on down the biliary tree and talk about even more reasons to take out our little bile sac. What a beautiful description of your favorite organ. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. We have a... <laughs> We have a 35-year-old female, past medical history of type 2 diabetes. Jacob, are you still laughing at your own joke? I am. I'm sorry. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. We have a 35-year-old female, past medical history of type 2 diabetes, who comes in with two days of fever, abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting, and starting this morning, confusion and lightheadedness. Her temperature is 39 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 94 over 63. Her pulse is 115 and her respiratory rate is 25. Exam is positive for diaphoresis, scleral icterus, tenderness to palpation in the right upper quadrant and epigastrium, and orientation only to person. What does diagnosis does this sound like to you, Yak? So without more info, I'd say acute cholangitis is at the top of my differential. What is cholangitis and why is it your top diagnosis? So acute cholangitis is when a blockage in the common bile duct, usually from cholidocolithiasis, results in ascending infection behind that blockage. This leads to a severely infected gallbladder, and the patient usually presents with right upper quadrant pain, fever, and possibly jaundice, all more severe than in acute cholecystitis. Whoa, all these terms are starting to sound the same to me. Before we delve into cholangitis, can you clarify all these different words that start with colo? I would love to. So first we have cholelithiasis, which is just a fancy word for your average old gallstone. Then we have cholecystitis, which is when the cholelithiasis blocks the cystic duct and leads to inflammation of the gallbladder behind it. So just the gallbladder. Then we have cholidocolithiasis, which is when a gallstone gets stuck in the common bile duct. And that can lead to cholangitis, which is when the common bile duct, gallbladder, and even hepatic biliary ducts become infected. That's a lot to take in, but it always tricks you up until you really get it down. Now back to our patient. What is the classic triad that she's demonstrating that gives us a nice big hint that this is cholangitis? So that would be Charcot's triad, which is a combo of fever, right upper quadrant pain, and jaundice. Note that none of these are necessary to diagnose cholangitis. 
especially jaundice, since it usually doesn't show up until later in the disease. And what other signs are concerning that this is severe cholangitis? So this patient happens to have the complete pentad that we call Raynaud's pentad, meaning she has the three in Charcot's triad, as well as hypotension and altered mental status. That is a very bad prognostic sign that suggests that the cholangitis is severe. Wait, let's take a step back. Didn't cholecystitis also cause Charcot's triad? Uh, No, not exactly. So it it doesn't cause jaundice because bilirubin still has a clear path to be excreted. Only the gallbladder, which just stores bile, is affected. Perfect transition to talking about labs in cholangitis. What would we expect to find? So in cholangitis, we would have a high leukocytosis and elevations all across the liver panel, especially ALKFOS, since biliary cells are inflamed and dying and bilirubin, with only some elevation in AST and ALT, if any. In severe disease, signs of end-organ damage, like an AKI and lactic acidosis, are also possible. Speaking of bilirubin, what kind of jaundice would this be? So this would be considered a post-hepatic jaundice, because there's a blockage in the excretion process of bile. That means we'd likely see a direct hyperbilirubinemia, given that the liver has already had a chance to conjugate it. Exactly. How do we diagnose cholangitis other than labs? That would be, again, with our good old abdominal ultrasound, or CT, which will show dilated intrahepatic and common bile ducts, along with signs of inflammation like fat stranding and edema. Let's say that's exactly what our patient's imaging shows. What do we do to treat her? First, we would give her broad-spectrum antibiotics and fluids. Then we would do an ERCP, or endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography, to clear the stone and other sludge that's accumulated behind it. You can also do some percutaneous biliary drainage if appropriate. Wow, seems like the one time we don't just take out the gallbladder. Yep, it is too inflamed and too infected, and it would probably just make the situation worse. You would take it out, though, after the cholangitis is resolved. Beautiful. Before we move on, what are two cases where a gallstone travels even further than the common bile duct and causes problems? So that would be gallstone pancreatitis and gallstone ileus. We'll cover pancreatitis thoroughly in the next episode, but briefly, how does gallstone pancreatitis differ from cholangitis? So actually, there's a lot of overlap. Both are caused by gallstones getting into the common bile duct and blocking the system up, leading to inflammation. You can even get cholangitis along with gallstone pancreatitis. The main difference is that if the pancreas is involved, you would expect more epigastric pain, You'd also see elevated amylase and lipase and signs of pancreatic inflammation on imaging. The good news is that management is basically the same. Antibiotics, fluids, and ERCP to dislodge the stone and clear out that bile. Nice. What the heck is gallstone ileus? So that's a very special situation when a fistula forms between the biliary tree and the small bowel, usually due to untreated cholecystitis or even Crohn's disease. And then a gallstone gets lodged in the small bowel to cause a mechanical obstruction. The classic imaging signs on the exam are pneumobilia, as in air in the bile ducts, and dilated loops of small bowel. And surgery is the option there. Sounds like a doozy. Let's move on to a quicker case on a test favorite. All right. So let's say we have a 50-year-old female, past medical history of hypothyroidism, and recently diagnosed hyperlipidemia, who's coming in with five months of intense itching as well as fatigue, and nothing she's tried has relieved her symptoms. Her vitals are normal, and exam reveals yellow bulges under her eyes. It also reveals right upper quadrant fullness and excoriations. What test favorite condition is this getting at? 
That would be primary biliary cholangitis or PBC. So what is PBC and how does it explain this patient's presentation? PBC is the autoimmune destruction of intrahepatic bile ducts leading to cholestasis. This classically presents with intense pruritus and fatigue and possibly hepatomegaly, just as in this patient. Also, some classic associations are middle-aged women and other autoimmune diseases, such as the hypothyroidism seen in this patient. Nice. And how is PBC diagnosed? If you're going to remember one thing about PBC, it's that anti-mitochondrial antibody, or AMA, is the main autoantibody association. A positive test is a slam dunk for the diagnosis. And if you see signs of cholestasis in a middle-aged woman, then AMA is usually the answer on the exam. You could also do imaging, but often right upper quadrant ultrasound is normal, so not a great answer on the test. Nice. And what other lab abnormalities would you expect in PBC? A normal or slightly elevated bilirubin, a very elevated ALKFOS, and actually hypercholesterolemia. This last finding could explain these yellow bulges under her eyes called xanthalomas, which are sure signs of hyperlipidemia. What is the other fat-related problem that you'll see in PBC? You'll get fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies, most notably vitamin D. This actually puts PBC patients at elevated risk of osteomalacia in the long term. And is there any way to treat PBC? Ursodeoxycholic acid, or UDEA, is used to prevent progression of disease through mechanisms we don't really need to know, though it's not curative. Eventually, many patients will require liver transplant, as PBC almost inevitably leads to cirrhosis and or hepatocellular carcinoma. Absolutely. And since we already spoke about it in our IBD lecture, let's briefly touch on primary sclerosing cholangitis, or PSC. What's the pathophys of PSC, and how is it different from PBC? Big question. PSC is when both intra- and extrahepatic bile ducts become fibrotic and dilated. It usually presents in young adult males and almost always in patients suffering from ulcerative colitis. Otherwise, it presents very similarly to PBC with cholestatic signs, symptoms, and lab patterns. Now, Ben, is there a good mnemonic to remember the difference between the two? Maybe a mnemonic that you and I came up with <laughs> as second-year med students? Yes, there happens to be exactly that. The short one that we came up with is biliary Brenda and sclerosing Steve. We picture Brenda as a middle-aged woman who's president of the AMA and spends a lot of time indoors because PBC only affects the intrahepatic bile ducts in middle-aged women with a positive AMA. Steve is a recent college graduate, specifically from UC, who loves the outdoors, since PSC affects the intra- and extrahepatic bile ducts in young men with ulcerative colitis. That's beautiful. And no offense to all you Brendas and Steves out there, you have beautiful names. Uh, any difference in diagnosing and treating PSC versus PBC? Diagnosis is more imaging-based, specifically with a magnetic resonance cholangiopancreatography, aka MRCP, which is basically an MRI of the biliary system. That would show the multifocal stricturing and dilation that we mentioned earlier. Biopsy is rarely done, but would show the classic onion skinning appearance. Unfortunately, there's really no treatment for PSC, just managing vitamin deficiencies and any complications which arise like strictures or infection. So Ben, we can't just take out the gallbladder and make it better? Not this time, Yak. Not this time. Well, with that, we've finished our journey through the biliary system and can finish up our hepatobiliary lectures with the next episode on the sponge of the abdomen, the pancreas. See you next time. 